Hello and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. I'm Imogen Watson, Work and Inspiration Editor at Campaign. Coming up in today's episode, as Ramadan drew to an end in late April, Campaign's Creativity and Culture Editor, Gurdjieff Deegan, explores how brands can be authentic while using cultural references. Shalina Jam Mohammed, Vice President of Islamic Marketing at Ogilvy, Dan Coleman, Head of Strategy at Starcom, and Omar El Jamal, Strategy Director at Mother London, join her to discuss. Then Sue Higgs, ECD of Dency Creative, and Paul Jordan, DBWA London's new ECD, dial in to review some recent ads. But first, we'll start by discussing some of the latest news with campaign reporter Charlotte Rawlings. She got it right this time. <laughs> Just to know, I did call her Harlot last time, so I <laughs> make a concerted effort to get that right this time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's all right. Now, you reported a few weeks back that Rattling Stick had reintroduced its Rattling Stuff division. While the name is the same, what's different this time? So it's emerged with a totally new focus and approach, Mm -hmm. uh, which is to specialise in TV ads, um, content and production solutions for more challenging budgets. Mm. Well, it's no secret that demand for production has been slow this year um, due to tighter budgets and the rise of agency in-house production. So Rattling Stick, coming out with Rattling Stuff, sort of pushed us to to explore it more in Question of the Week, where we questioned whether Rattling Stick's low-cost arm signaled trouble in the production sector. So Charlotte, what was um, some of our industry leaders, what did they say? Well, can I just say what a good question piece this was, by the mm. way? I'm not just saying that. Like Ten um, responses. Ten. Yeah. That's that's yeah. got to be a campaign record, surely. It's up there, I think. Yeah. Um, so although people were acknowledging the struggles the industry is facing, like the ones um, you referenced, mm-hmm. most agreed that Wrestling Stick's choice to bring in wrestling stuff is just a sign of them diversifying their offering. And also it reflects how there's a change in the overall landscape mm-hmm. of production. Mm-hmm. Um some working at other production companies that answered the question said that their companies have had their own versions of wrestling yeah. stuff for some time, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was quite interesting. I liked the comment about it, that just really good marketing. Yeah, I know that was interesting. I mean, they've got campaigns for our story about it. So I know. fantastic well, marketing. And a question of the week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but George Floyd, um, head of sales at Academy Films, said that Academy launched something called A Plus in mm. 2011 with a similar remit uh, to wrestling stuff. But then it got reabsorbed into Academy in 2018 because all of their budgets came with their own challenges, which mm. I thought was um, quite interesting. Yeah, it's super interesting. Some also like made interesting points about how introducing a part of the business designed to tackle challenging budgets shouldn't impact the quality of the work, which I think mm. we can all agree on. Um, Rania Robinson, chief executive and partner at Quiet Storm, said creativity thrives under more restricted circumstances. Mm-hmm. So lower budgets don't have to mean less brilliant work. But she also said that bigger budgets increase the chance of doing something outstanding. And I think, yeah, people need to be realistic in that yeah lower budget shouldn't impact the quality of the work but sometimes mm-hmm. sometimes it does like it can't be avoided so i think what wrestling stick is doing here by introducing its own like production arm dedicated to this yeah. hopefully means that the quality of the work isn't going to be impacted too much and when you mentioned budgets there i think what charlie Gatsy sinclair um this chief production officer at uncommon and what she says about we need to stop being defined by budgets Mm. Um, and she thinks it's more important to consider how different projects require different expressions so yeah i feel like we're also focused on you know what's the signal but actually at the end of the day it's it's just diversifying yeah yeah and also i think a more maybe a different answer that uh, compared to all of the other ones that we received. Lucy Kelly, executive producer at, um, and deputy managing director at Smuggler, um, also mm-hmm. made the point that presenting talent as a low cost option undermines the skills and expertise of the talent and the work. And she also questioned mm-hmm. where the talent goes from there. Yeah, yeah. In other news, Spike Lee, the Oscar winning filmmaker, screenwriter, actor and producer... That's a mouthful. That's a mouthful. <laughs> uh, has been named Honorary Creative Maker of the Year. And it's a new award at Cannes Lines this year. Charlotte, why, why has it been recognised? 
So the award was introduced to celebrate a broader range of creative people and mm. Spike has been recognised for his extensive and remarkable contributions to filmmaking and television. Um, Simon Cook, chief exec of Can Lion, said that Spike embodies the spirit of this award as a maker that strives to make creative stories and show the world what they can mm. only see in their imaginations. And this isn't just the case for filmmaking. Spike has also been involved with ad campaigns like mm-hmm. Nike's Jordan brand, where he worked with Michael Jordan. And Shannon Watkins, chief marketing officer at Jordan said that his ability to capture the pulse of black culture sets him apart from others in the industry. Mm-hmm. So he also founded a boutique agency called Spike DDB where It's he... making me feel very lazy. I know. <laughs> I know. I mean, what did you do when you woke up this morning? Have Not you much. achieved anything, Imogen? No, I had a I shower. Haven't. Yeah. Um, I didn't even do that. So. I didn't have a shower. <laughs> you didn't. No, so we didn't even shower this morning. Spike, you're putting us to shame. Um, But he founded a boutique agency called Spike DDB where uh, he aspires to help brands change the world. Um, Mm. So I think this is definitely good. This is great. Mm. Charlotte, are you a big fan of Spike Lee? Yeah, I think um, he was a very important figure in like when we were studying film at uni i um, I, I studied film at undergrad i seem to tell everyone i come yeah. across that I no you've that. never mentioned it it's a very interesting part of my life mm-hmm. um no but- i'm very jealous <laughs> just sat around and watched films all the time but yeah um spike lee was someone that we that we studied a lot and one film that sticks in my mind was do the right thing um and it's just it's really good i think it's crazy how it came out some time ago and yet it reflects a lot of the issues that are still happening today when it comes to race and discrimination and police brutality. Um, It's set on the hottest day of the year in Brooklyn and it's just kind of like a slice of life. And yeah, I think the way Spike deals with these themes is just, it's it's really interesting. And if anyone hasn't seen it, I'd recommend you watch it. Mm, well, lovely. Cam Lyons has been working really closely with Black at Cannes, who, who are going to present the prize to him on the festival stage. And that was founded in 2022 as a way to create systemic change within advertising and trying to increase the representation of black and brown people at Cannes from jurors uh, to speakers and attendees. Um, and Cannes also been working with the Black British Network. It just feels like this Cannes Lions is going to be like really diversity is going to be front and centre. Yeah, it seems like they've really prioritised it yeah. this year, which I don't know, but better late than never but oh yeah yeah it's a lot same for a lot of things we talk about yeah um but it's yeah it's great to see the cans working directly with these groups um Cephas Williams is the founder of Black British Network um and uh, yeah again he's been driving this representation um what's he doing this year so uh, Cannes Lions and the Black British Network are taking 50 black individuals to Cannes and have invited other organisations in the creative industry to partner with the programme. So mm. the Black British Network was set up following the murder of George Floyd in May 2020. Mm-hmm. And last year, Williams personally invested £20,000 to help bring black talent to Cannes Lions. So Williams said that because he's put his own money behind this, he wants to see other leaders and organisations mm-hmm. who earn much more than him to follow his lead and do the same. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Charlotte. Now over to Gurdjieff as she explores how brands can be authentic while using cultural references. Ramadan came to an end in April and Muslims around the country marks Eid over a long weekend from the 21st of April. As the years go by, an increasing number of brands have been tapping into the occasion, but are they getting it right? So let's welcome Shalina Jan Mohammed, Vice President of Islamic Marketing at Ogilvy, Dan Coleman, Head of Strategy at Starcom, and Omar El Gamal, Strategy Director at Mother London. Hello to you all. Hello. Hi. Hello. So we're recording this uh, interview a few days after Eid. Um, Shalina, did you enjoy the festivities? Did you do anything special? We always supersize Eid. So we have three days of Eid. And I tell you, by the time we got to Monday, I had what I'm going to call an Eid hangover. (laughs) It was just a lot of chocolate and sweets and just driving from house to house. And I don't drink, but I think that's what a hangover feels like on a Monday when your head hurts. I'm sure it is. Um, so Omar how, and, and, and yourself, you obviously celebrate Eid. Yeah, no, it was wonderful. Um, I'm, I'm far away from family, so it's always it's always a bit um, weird. But but my wife, lovely, um, always always celebrates with me and things, and we get a special. Eid uh, cakes uh, like mamul and, and kahk and stuff, which are normally quite difficult to find. Uh, but surprisingly, I'm starting to find them here. But I, I think not, probably nothing tastes better than like the first 
sip of coffee in the morning uh, on Eid because uh, I'm a big coffee drinker myself. So, uh, Oh, nice. Okay. So do we think brands are realizing Eid is a big event in the Islamic calendar and it's like a good thing to engage the community? Shalina? So what's been nice about this year and building off the back of last year is we're definitely seeing a lot more brands engaging with Ramadan, the month of fasting, before Eid and the Eid celebration itself. And it's quite an exciting position to be in after looking at Islamic marketing for 10 years, which is in the early days, it was like, oh, there's a Ramadan advert. Quick, let's tell everybody. Oh, there is an Eid advert. Isn't that exciting? And now we're getting to the really great place where you can look at a range of adverts and go, that one's quite good. That one's a bit rubbish. They should have tried a bit harder with that one. And I think when you get to the place where you can comment on quality and impact, that means we're having real progress and I think the exciting conversation is where's the good stuff and where is it a bit poor and what could be better? Dan, you're nodding there. Yeah, I, I think that's really right. And um, I was interested in the piece and campaign this week, which really did go, you know, I mean, admittedly, I think it was trying to be positive, but it did sort of demonstrably show um, whilst, you know, I think Tesco's has done some brilliant groundbreaking work in this area. The article did sort of talk about how some of it was a little bit tone deaf and some of it kind of, it's kind of in the details, isn't it? And I think it's, you know, speaking as, you know, someone with white privilege, I think it's really important to understand and really get into the culture of um, all of these different um, opportunities and occasions and try to understand it and empathise from the kind of the audience that we're targeting. And I think that's a really kind of key point that we can sort of move beyond as Shalina says, oh, isn't it great, you know, that there's one, you know, so actually how do we do it right and how do we get it right and how do brands actually add to the culture as well as, you know, taking advantage of the opportunity. So Omar, um, I know you were behind the Uber Eats work. Um, do you want to explain a little bit about what you guys did there and how that came about? Yeah, uh, I mean, the Uber Eats is the second second year now, I think, that we do something with Uber Eats for Ramadan and for, for Eid. Um, I'm as, as somebody who's been in the country now for maybe seven years, um, and and thrilled to call London home. I'm, I'm I was quite touched, really, by my um, colleagues' suggestion and and clients' suggestion uh, last year to do something for for Ramadan for the first time. Um, and I think the thing that's really struck me is that it feels like it's something that's quite it's quite public for the first time this year. Uh, most of the stuff that typically targets the Muslim community in, in the UK during during Ramadan and Eid kind of feels like it's always been quite targeted and uh, happening in like small pockets and, and things, either in supermarket aisles or, or like digital banners and stuff. And I think this was such a great opportunity for us and Uber Eats to do something that was actually a national campaign. Um, and uh, we, we tried to take something that isn't just celebratory of Ramadan and, and of Eid happening, and existing, um, but but also actually doing something that was quite useful for, for Muslims. So we created a campaign called Iftar Incoming uh, because um, we, uh, for, for most people who don't know, uh, Muslims every day break their fast at sunset. And sunset is at a different time depending on which city you're in uh, and, and obviously changes uh, by day. So actually, Last Friday, for example, I believe uh, sunset in London was at about 8.03. Uh, and in Glasgow on the same day, it was at 8.34. So there's like about 30 minutes swing, depending on which part of the country you're in. So we just simply took the data itself, the, the actual sunset times of each location, and put it on each of the, the different um, posters and, and billboards to remind people, to remind Muslims of, of what time sunset was that day. But we also had a service from Uber Eats that allowed you to schedule your delivery uh, of either groceries or, or takeaway so that you can get it in time for, for iftar. And I think we really pushed to try and take something that felt like it actually really spoke to the, to the Muslim community, but was also quite useful. I think doing it at such a national level and seeing the clients want to do it at such a national level just felt really remarkable and special for, for me personally, at least anyway, because I think it's one of the few times that you really get to see um, everything being acknowledged in, in like the broad daylight and and uh, and in public and and at the same year that we have Ramadan lights in Piccadilly Circus for the first time, um, 
it meant, it meant quite a lot to me and I hope it meant a lot to a lot of the people out there as well. I think the Ramadan lights in Piccadilly Circus are the perfect example of where culture, community and brand intersect. Because um, so for those who haven't seen them, the road between Piccadilly Circus and Leicester Square had the equivalent of the Christmas lights overhead, but with a design that was resonant to Muslims. So they were crescent moons and stars and a happy Ramadan. And I remember walking along that road a couple of days before Ramadan, you know, like a proper Londoner, you know, scurrying about, just ignoring the world. I happened to look up and I just froze. My breath was taken away because I looked at it. And there is something intrinsically resonant because the moon and the stars obviously affected me because they, they feel so familiar and then I looked up and I saw the happy Ramadan wording and I took a quick photo and tweeted it out. And honestly, you know, I went into a couple of meetings and I came out and, you know, there were several hundred retweets because clearly it had really touched people. And so it is absolutely exciting to see your community represented on such a public stage. And I think that's really powerful. The I wrote about this afterwards. I think what brands have missed is that, this was created by the community. It was a Muslim designer who'd done lights previously. It was funded by local Muslim communities and businesses. But why weren't other businesses and brands doing that? I mean, we have Christmas lights already. The amount of footfall attracting people to an area to come and see that, the amount of excitement that went round. And if your brand has the lights above it, I mean, the amount of photos that were taken with those Ramadan lights, from a branding and commercial perspective, it's just complete madness that it hadn't been done before and Muslims had to proactively go and do that. And I think that's such a great lesson for brands, thinking about how to deliver authentic cultural and community experiences, while at the same time being true to what they're there to do, which is to make money and to sell things. And you can do both successfully. You just have to really think a little bit creatively and be a little bit more open-minded about how you can deliver that. So I do think that brands are kind of realizing that, but I think perhaps they're not always getting the cultural references right. Um, you're, you're agreeing there, there, Dan, are you? Well, I think it's like the normal rules of marketing apply about insights, don't they? And I think where we have really benefited is by talking to our, you know, so there are um, admittedly junior Muslim people on our team who we talk to about, well, what does it mean to you? And how, and that's where the Ferrero work very much came from. It's like this understanding that it is actually a big part of, um, of Eid and um, Diwali and different cultural um, times. And that was really exciting for we You know, I didn't know that, right? So, you know, and I have to hold my hands up and I don't really understand, you know, uh, the, the, the importance of... So I was reading about the, the importance of that time um, during Ramadan of when the sun goes down and how this is actually economically a really interesting opportunity when, you know, lots of people actually are out and about and do want to have things. And it's like stuff that, that I was just reading about this week, which is like, I have to admit, is not something I understand. And I think what agencies need to get much better at is by listening to our own people. You know, a lot of the best insights will often come from your own teams. And, you know, I just genuinely think we need to be much better at, you know, I think... At lower levels of most agencies now, in terms of recruitment, I think we're wise to this. But the, the issue is we then have to listen to those people ourselves um, as they go through the, the industry. And, you know, and I think opening it up and that is what, you know, the big learning that I've had, trying to listen to our teams and trying to make sure that we're making the most of the work that we're doing in this area, allows us to do, I think, to do better work. And that's not just, again, for commercial reasons. That's because I think we want to be more culturally relevant. I think we want to be more authentic. I think we want to be believable and we want to create brand advantage. And also we want to make a better community. I mean, I love what you said, Omar, about, you know, Britain is a great place. But it's, you know, it's not always a great place, right? So, and I think we all in, in this industry at our best have an opportunity to try and build, you know, a, a better place. But I think that's something that I'm really excited about. And starting with our teams and listening to people from, all, uh, you know, a whole diverse group of being inclusive in terms of who we listen to, I think is incredibly important. Dan, do you want to just step back a bit and just tell us a bit about how that Ferrero work came out? So, so you did, so Ferrero did some work for Diwali last year, was it? Um, yes. So, what, what do you want to just kind of explain to our listeners what that was? 
So, I mean, it was, it was, as I said, it was like any of the best work. It came from a very sort of human moment. So it came from an understanding of the important role that uh, Ferrero Rocher played both in Diwali and actually in and around Eid. So it was like, and I do think there's a kind of an interesting um, point there. And so that kind of sparked us a little bit. And so we started to do some social listening and some search trend data. Um, and the, so the, the theory behind all of this was we wanted Ferrero Rocher to be more contemporary and reflect a more contemporary modern Britain. Um, and yes, Christmas is always going to be massively important to Ferrero Rocher, but we felt that actually... The, the desire to celebrate and to celebrate different occasions in the UK has has increased massively since, you know, since the 80s and 90s when, you know, Christmas was kind of this big commercial opportunity. I, I think it's really interesting listening to how insights are mined and how they're brought to life. And I think that's a really important conversation for the industry to have in terms of how do you create nuance and sophistication and authenticity and it's great to hear that, you know, upcoming staff are able to put their ideas forward. I think what we all have to be very cautious about is the difference between lived experience and expertise in understanding what a real nugget or a real insight is. And the fact that it's not just the idea generation, but also the assessment of the quality of the idea that's really important. So on the one hand, the fact that Eid and Diwali and other big celebrations do exist around the world is a, is a really valuable resource. On the other hand, Britain is a very specific, unique kind of place. And actually where sometimes the repurposing of those assets can go wrong is because actually it's tone deaf about what the UK is. So the Tesco advert, which we've all kind of talked about in very coded language, um, and it's a great advert. And honestly, my heartstrings were tugged. But actually, there were quite a lot of things that were tone deaf about it precisely because it repurposed almost stereotypes of what it means to be a British Muslim. So the, the reason I bring it up here is that it's a very south asian pakistani view of what eid is because it's um it's based on a on an event called chandrat the night of the new moon which is not something that possibly up to half or two-thirds of muslims in the uk would actually have any resonance with so you know it's it's about what's the right insight that goes with it and how do you assess the quality of it i mean i just wanted to do a couple of other examples that were less high profile than tesco so one that my I eye rolled so far, my eyes went fell out the back of my head. Was um, a health and life coaching one, which was entitled Ramadan Weight Loss, and it had pictures of five, I think, five different women in different age. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, oh my god, I can't believe this. And while while people do talk about using a fasting period to lose weight. To, to suggest to Muslims that Ramadan is for weight loss is about as wrong as you can get. And then it was coupled with the fact it was like, have two dates and an avocado to break your fast, especially if you're a 55 plus woman. I mean, it's like, how many different wrong things can you get into one advert? Because also that person will pass out. But so that's about kind of assessing the quality of of the insight that you're getting and does it resonate and is it sensitive? But on the other hand, one that I really, really loved was from the National Trust. And they talked about um, how Ramadan is a time for reflection and, you know, kind of taking time out. And actually, if you go into nature, that's a really great place and time to reflect. And also, would you like to donate some money to plant a tree? And that felt really true. It felt very light of touch and it felt like it was giving a benefit to Muslims who are engaging with the brand that was of value because you could just go out and enjoy nature and it felt kind of very true. And that I think is an example of a really nice insight that gives value to its audience while at the same time it's promoting its brand. And what, what I love about that as well is it's absolutely true to the National Trust brand, right? So that, you know, National Trust, it's the Blossom campaign, isn't it? It's about getting back to nature and all the kind of colossal controversy there's been in around restore trust and the issues in around the national trust i think they've got this very strong kind of brand identity that they are then allow, allow you know it feels authentic to then express ramadan through that that they've already established right and i think it's a, also given the the controversy they have sought from some fairly unsightly people in my view it's great that they are able to support the communities 
in a different way through that, through expressing that kind of brand. So what a lovely example. Omar, is, are there any ads that you saw that, um, that you wouldn't like to add to that? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of in, I know there's been lots of criticism about things like the, the Tesco aid ad um, and lots of other stuff as well. I'm kind of in two minds about it. And, and one side of my head, I kind of feel like it's great that these ads even just exist um, and they should be celebrated even just for that. Because I obviously don't, you know, nobody should take for granted how difficult it is to get a campaign out, let alone get clients to, to leap into something that maybe they feel like they don't really understand fully. The flip side of that criticism, I think is quite just and, and quite fair. That is quite surface level and it doesn't really, I, I've, I've yet to see many campaigns that get deep into more nuanced insight about what Ramadan really means. Like I, the National Trust example is a fantastic one. I think, you know, that, that that understands that Ramadan is about more than just food, for example, um, or the absence of, of food, um, as it's often mm. dramatized and, and stuff. I think there's there's so much opportunity for brands to get involved, whether it be reflection and, and kind of meditation and spirituality and things, or it can be, you know, I'd love to see more sports brands um, get, get onto um how they can be relevant during Ramadan, because it's not like Muslims suddenly stop sports and we see you know, athletes from Olympians to, to footballers have, have all competed while um, and trained while while fasting and, and things. Um, charity is a huge, huge subject um, and generosity is a huge part of what Ramadan is, is all about. Um, yeah, there, there's so much more opportunity and I think it hasn't really been discovered and, and tapped yet. And I think, you know, as a result, the majority of the work out there is kind of just acknowledging that Ramadan exists um, or that Eid has has, uh, has just started um, and, and so on. I think the only other campaign that I can think of from a couple of years ago that really, from my point of view, took the effort of understanding what life was like for, for their audience during Ramadan was the, I think it was the FIFA EA Sports um, Midnight League, the Ramadan Midnight League, which clearly understood that a lot of a lot of youth play a lot of football during Ramadan at midnight. Um, and there are whole competitive leagues that happen at crazy hours of, of the night and stuff just before, just as you approach Sahur and, and things. And I thought that campaign in particular showed a real care and attention to, to detail and trying to understand the audience in a way that was also relevant for the brand rather than just kind of being present for, for, for the sake of it. So hopefully it's the start of many more uh, things to come. Is there any advice you'd, you'd give to brands who, who want to use uh, cultural references in their marketing? I think the first thing to think about is what is the intersection between your brand and your Muslim audience or your whatever your cultural audience is? So how do you find something where you add value? So thinking about Muslim audiences and the term often used is Islamic marketing, which is a very imperfect term, but we, we all kind of know what it means. I always advise clients that you're not there to promote a religion, but equally you you have to be careful you're not there to commercialize it. And the sweet spot between that is how do you support your Muslim audiences in their aspiration to fulfill their Muslim lifestyle? And you can apply that across any audience at all. And when you find that intersection, that's where the success lies. And Muslims, and I'm sure other cultural audiences, don't begrudge a brand selling their products and making money as long as it's adding value to their life. And that's what consumer experience is, right? It's value exchange, your your brand or product in return for the consumer getting some value. So think really carefully about what that is. And then on top of that, respect your audience and we have got beyond the point where it's just nice that the ad exists. There is a kind of much higher bar to go for it. And I'll give one final example before the others do that. Um, a couple. One is Krispy Kreme does Eid donuts, but they always sell out of them before you can get to Eid. And I just don't understand what the point of it is because you can't order an Eid donut in Ramadan. So, you know, it's, it's not like you can have a great idea, please execute it really well. But also the other point is, please don't patronize your audience. So somebody shared with me a picture of um, Ramadan, spelt with an M, which is completely wrong, printed on your POS. 
and don't forget Ramadan, 21st of March. I'm like, <laughs> you don't need to tell Muslims. It's like you would never see a poster that said, don't forget Christmas, 25th of December. You would not see that, right? So, you know, ex- deliver the same level of sophistication that you would for any other audience. Dan, would you like to jump in? Yeah, again, I think it's absolutely essential to get it authentic. And I think we've talked a lot about that. And I think it has to be targeted first and all at the, in this instance, we're talking about Muslim community or as Shalina said, whichever community. But I think there is a benefit for brands to get it right as well in terms of differentiating themselves and feeling, you know, feeling that they are doing something that's, gives them some sort of competitive advantage by demonstrably showing that. So, um, but by doing it right and doing it for the right reasons. So it's not just about some sort of cynical kind of idea that you can benefit from a wider cynical marketing strategy. But I do think that advertising has a role to do good. So I think we were talking about it's around 7% of consumers are, are Muslim in the UK, which is a, a good a good enough reason in itself, right? But for me, there's an even bigger goal here, which is by demonstrably showing that you are contemporary, culturally relevant about a better Britain uh, for everybody. I think that's a really exciting goal that really gets my blood going. You know, it's like, well, how, how can we absolutely try and do this to be more culturally relevant, to try and build a better place? And I think advertising at its best can do that. And I think that's what gets me out of bed in the morning, really. It's, you know, it's not actually about selling out of Krispy Kremes on the Eid version, although congratulations to them on that. But it's also about kind of trying to build a better country for all of us and on behalf of our advertisers that our advertisers can then flourish in as well. Um, Omar? Yeah, I would say I would say anytime you're doing any type of marketing that talks to uh, a specific community, I think there's obviously all the attention and care that needs to happen to, to show that you have tried to genuinely understand that community. But I think it's also about making sure that you contribute to it um, I think any brand that's that's doing something um, about Ramadan or about any community for that matter at all, I think you should really ask yourself how the brand is actually contributing um, something positive to to that community, rather than just seeing it as a as a dollar bill um, or or an opportunity to kind of extract value, uh, so to speak. Um, uh, I, I think that's a really really critical part uh, because it it just lends to the sense of authenticity that people would rather see from brands rather than a sense that you're trying to manipulate or trying to sell to me. And and I think that's a really important part of any type of of, um, cultural activation. Okay, I think um, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. It's such a a big topic to discuss um, on such a small amount of time on a podcast. So um, hopefully we can talk a bit more about this. Um, I'm going to say thank you to Omar, Shalina and Dan and hand back to Imogen. Thanks, Gurjit. Now on to the final part of this podcast. And I'd like to introduce Sue Higgs, Executive Creative Director at Dentsu Creative and Paul Jordan, TBWA London's new Executive Creative Director. Welcome both. Hi. Hi there. Thanks for having me. No worries. Anytime. Before we kick off with reviewing the ads, as just mentioned, Paul, you've got a very new job. Um, how is that going? Um, it's too soon to tell. It's um, um, uh, This is day four. Um, I, my gut instinct so that it's going to be great. Everyone that I've met here is um, has been lovely. Uh, Andy Jacks, I've been a big fan of his for years. He's done amazing work. So it's great to get the opportunity to work with Andy. And the whole um, leadership team here are great. They're all unified. They've all got a, a mission. They know what they want to do. But beyond that, I, I'm loving working south of the river. Never been south of the river, which is great. Where um, is the office? I can't remember. Yeah, it's Bankside. So literally behind... Um, so it's not that like south. <laughs> it's south enough, yeah. <laughs> south enough for me. And, and what, does the, what does the new role entail? Well, really, I mean, we're kind of a sort of middle-sized agency, I guess you'd say. We're kind of 80 or so people. And up until now, Andy has been just doing it all on his own. You know, he's been head of new business and, you know, making the work great and leading the department. And my job is to come in and, you know, help Andy, create a bit of space for him, lead the department, try and... Um, help win new business and make the work um, even better than it already is. Mm, sounds very exciting, Raul. 
why don't we go over to reviewing some ads. And first up, we have Marmite, Baby Scan by Adam and Eve DDB. The ad is based on research that found babies in the womb respond to different flavors with varying facial expressions. The film takes a documentary style approach showing couples eager to find out whether a key detail about their baby, whether it likes Marmite or not. Uh, it was created by Francis Leach and Christopher Bosher and directed by James Rouse through Biscuit Filmworks. Let's have a listen. It's a question many expectant parents ask themselves. What are we having? So we used science to find out. A recent study has shown that babies in the womb may be able to taste what their mothers have eaten via the amniotic fluid. Which led us to doing our own study. Madam, it's meant to be five grams per slice. I love Marmite. OK, sure. Here you go, madam. Sir? Uh, it's, it's not for you. Oh, she loves it. It's so weird. <laughs> it's not that weird. I quite like it. Could be that your partner's genes have affected baby's reaction. Oh. There's baby there. Oh. Looks like baby doesn't like it much. What? He doesn't like Marmite? Um, no. But he could learn to love it, like, later on, when he's older. <laughs> oh, look! She's so cute! It's a lover. Takes after me. <laughs> Did you have to say that? Hold on. It's updating. Oh. So it's a hater? Um... That doesn't look like a hater to me. Does it, does it to you? I feel quite emotional. Oh. <laughs> could you print me off some stills, please? Yeah. <laughs> I think they look great in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they? Yeah. 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 Or the downstairs toilet. Well, Sue, I hate to say it, but do you love it or do you hate it? Oh, There's a problem with Marmite, isn't it? There's no thing in the no. middle, is there? That's the thing. <laughs> you see, I love Marmite and I love, love, love the campaign. Mm. And I like this ad. Does that work? No, no. I want you to tell me whether you really hate it or that you're you really asking love me it. to put all my eggs in one. But okay, if you put a gun to my head, which I think you are, um, I would probably go. I love it because it's because there's a lot to love about it. The campaign in general is the gift that keeps giving. It's a, mm. one of the most mm -hmm. incredible platforms I think that's ever been creative, you know, and it is the gift that keeps giving the way it reinvents itself, the way it taps into culture, the way it kind of can mold itself to speak in so many different scenarios. I love, love, love. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know why this one didn't capture me in the way. I mean, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't be unhappy to have it on my reel. It's a great one, but and but I'm set the bar very very mm -hmm. high. I think it's because some of the, they've almost done it to themselves by setting that bar so high because such, some of the other ones were so so great that maybe this wasn't isn't. But to be honest, having said that, it's pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. My brain starts thinking. I'm start thinking about how. You know the Seven Up series they did way back. You know when they, you know, you show me, show me the child, and I'll show you the man or whatever or person, as it should be probably now. Um, I started thinking about, you know, if they go back in seven years and still test if they're still haters mm. or lovers or whatever. It there's longevity like, to it. There's longevity in it, yeah. But you know what? I've been really hypercritical. It's a, it is a wonderful piece mm -hmm. of work. It's another great addition to a campaign. Maybe not my fave one, but it's still pretty darn good. Like mm -hmm. I say, I enjoyed mm -hmm. it. Paul, what do you reckon? This is going to be a really boring podcast if I, I'm going to agree with Sue here. Okay, um, next I one. Agree more, really. <laughs> <laughs> but I do have a, a, a kind of slight caveat. It's, yeah, I, it's a great campaign. You know, that line, mm. love it or hate it, I was like, oh, that's amazing. It's like it's entered the vernacular. People just say mm -hmm. such and such is a mm. bit Marmite now. And they say that about a kind of thing or a person. And then I started thinking, hang on a minute. Did the, did the line come first and then they adopted it for the campaign or did the campaign come first? And I had to go and check up. So I, uh, I had a little read up on it and it was um, in 1996 by Richard Nandy, mm. uh, DDB. And it's just like phenomenal. The, the line came first, you know, the, the end line came first. And for that to have been adopted by the nation, it's, like, it's just in language. Mm. It's incredible. It's such a gift. But I have to say it's a gift and a curse because – the work that has been created against this campaign has been phenomenal and it's been so good. And I, where I'm going to agree with Sue here is that this one, unfortunately, pales a little bit by comparison. 
And I think it's a little bit similar mm. to that other one that James Rouse directed, which was the kind of um, the DNA one yeah. where you're finding out, you know, about the family. Mm-hmm. But it's not as funny, unfortunately. I mean, yeah. it's great. It's still great casting, still great performances, still a great idea. But I think what was lovely about that DNA one is it had lots of different opportunities for humour, people feeling a bit um, betrayed, people a bit ashamed. And in this one, it was kind of like the same scene over and over again. Mm. And it was a it was a slightly long 90 seconds, but I have to agree with so again. It was like, I would love to have made it, but it's just, you know, in that great pantheon of Marmite ads, it's not quite up there. Mm. I, I agree. I think some of the others have felt so much sharper. I mean, the mockumentary is quite tricky to, because you're already in a pastiche before you start. And I think what was so great about the some of the other ones was the the observation became very funny, whereas actually you're, you're in like 90 seconds of the same and then you become as good as your writing as opposed to what your insight is. I think, mm. you know, like I say, this, this is it's a wonderful piece of work, mm. like we say, but maybe not the campaign is obviously an incredible campaign with such high standards and wow I didn't realize 96 yeah. that is incredible isn't it like that yeah. 27 a quick bit of math 27 <laughs> years that's unheard of very that quick is math. I mean wow 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 incredible I mean and and like you say to get into the nation's consciousness and have a you know being used as a verb and in the vernacular is is from a product truth is so unique. Mm. It, it's it's a wonderful it reminds thing. Reminds me of Specsavers and the ability to keep coming out with it. But the thing about Marmite is the fact that they've sold this brand on the fact that lots of people hate it. Like I, yeah, I can't name I another brand that comes out and says you probably might not like this. <laughs> well, no, not that you probably might not like it. You'll hate it. Yeah, I know. It, it's so bold, but so right. It's it's so it's so right. You know what I mean? It's it's incredible. I love right. it. Love, love, love it. <laughs> love, love, love. Uh, next up, we have BBC Creative's 2023 Eurovision campaign. The campaign explores the quirky ways the UK public prepared for the Eurovision Song Contest and encourages people to host their own Eurovision viewing parties. It was created by Paul Bailey and Russell Hendry and directed by Chris Balmond through Outsider. Let's have a listen. The world's biggest song contest is coming to the UK. Are you ready? Not you, May Muller. It's time to show the world how we Eurovision. Uh, are you forgetting something? Outfits! Cheers, Kizza! Bring out the glam, the fierce, the buffet, Nigella! Don't worry, I've got it all under control. We need flags. Loads of flags. Let them hear us in key. I was born ready. It's Eurovision. I've got all the cheese It's in Liverpool. I didn't know, sorry. You've been living under a rock. Of course it is. Now come on. The Eurovision Song Contest. Live across the BBC. I mean, it's hard to believe that Eurovision's around the corner. Are either of you fans? Ah, uh, I was a fan. <laughs> What happened? I, what? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I was a fan. I, I, it doesn't sound like either of you are fans. <laughs> it's weird. It's I sort of feel like I do a little bit about some of the things. I feel you got you. You watch it once and you get it, and then you move on. I can't keep repeating. It feels a lot like the same experience. So I've sort of been to the opera. Tick. I've been. You know. I went You've to the ballet. It. Tick. I've done. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I don't need to do it again. Maybe I'm a heathen. Mm. I've never been a big fan. <laughs> I, 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 the music sort of drills into, drills in my head in the wrong it's way. Just so, it's, just, it's just so long, isn't it? I thought, you know what? If I'm honest, I love the idea of it and I'll sit down with the family and then I'll start watching it and then I just lose mm. the will to live after a while. But it just goes on too long. My little nieces love it. Yeah, <laughs> I think I loved it. My kids loved it when they were young. It was a spectacle. It was a sit down. It's quite, what I quite like about though is it's very good appointment telly. You can create a, an event around it. I like the fact that, you know, not everybody sits down at the same time unified in the way and sort of has an event. And I know this because <clears throat> not me, uh, but 
somebody I might know, they have a drinking game, right. you know, have a shot Naughty. for each one, you know, like whatever, whatever country's up, you'll drink a shot to match. So you can make it a real kind of like engaging sort of thing. I think if you're just to sit down on your own and stare at it, it might be a bit, I think that's what's done really well in this. It feels very predictable, but also very right because it's exactly what it is. People do get ready. You know, it is a big event. It's probably not something you stumble upon and think, oh, I just see what's going on here. People plan for it. People prayer for it. They buy the food. They buy the drink. They buy the flags. They buy the thing. So they, it does capture that very specific moment in time where everybody sits down and shares and kind of gets involved mm-hmm. in some maybe not always great singing, but that's sort of not the point. It's an event mm. where people just really get you together. Get, it's, it is a bit marmite. I was going to say, you, get, you took my line. It's a bit marmite. Oh. <laughs> I was waiting to say it. <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, it is, it is, it is a bit marmite. I think you do, or, although with this one, you know, sometimes you pass through it. But yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's interesting anyway. Paul, obviously you've come from BBC Creative, so not that you'll be biased. Yeah, so so full full disclosure, I um, Paul and Russ, the team that made mm. this, I got them into BBC Creative as well. There so I am now going to love taking them apart. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. you've waited all this no, time. No, yeah, exactly. No, not at all. They're great guys, and it's a it's again. I'm kind of concurring with Sue here. I think it's um, a lovely piece of work. I think it's a lot like Eurovision itself. It's a kind of wonderful celebration of that thing. It's silly. It's joyful. It's camp. It's over the top. It's tongue in cheek. And it doesn't take itself too seriously. And, you know, as someone that doesn't particularly like Eurovision, I'm glad that Eurovision exists as a thing. I think it serves a great um, kind of like celebratory moment. It's ever so camp in in the world or in Europe. But um and I think the ad does the same thing. I think it's um, joyful and silly and uh, and a bit over the top. Well, yeah, what I really like about the work that a lot of BBC creative do is the little the attentions to detail. And I love the fact that the Scouse woman who got interviewed on the street and said, oh, she had no idea it was going on. <laughs> so you do wonder where she's been. They got her in the ad, which I thought was brilliant. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. I agree. I think I think the ad is made even the richer for the little touches mm-hmm, in it, mm-hmm. you know, because it does. It, it, Nigella <laughs> Lawson, I mean, obviously predictably Ryland and everyone else, but it was. I think it's those little moments in it that just enrich it because it is, like Paul said, I totally agree. It's a wonderful kind of camp celebration of all the madness that is Eurovision. And, hey, you know what? We need to have a bit of fun because it's been a bit tricky recently, yeah. I think. So, you know, I embrace it. I love it. I think it's a brilliant bit of fun. It's predictably Eurovision, but why mm-hmm. not? It's it, it's it's a great, great thing. Mm-hmm. On to the next ad. Butterkist and St. Luke's have created a series of animated ads which remind consumers of its microwavable popcorn and how it makes the perfect accompaniment to TV and real-life dramas. The visual shows a bag of buttercrisp rotating and popping, reminding people to go grab a pack. Uh, the work was created by Philip Mailer and Darren Keff. Let's have a listen. What did you guys think? Are you big fans? Yeah, I, I really, really like this. I thought it was kind of, there was something about it that was like, well, of course it's out of home, but it reminded me of classic classic old posters which were super super simple and they don't do very much but they're incredibly effective and i just love that you know it feels almost like a bottom drawer idea that someone's realized that you know that kind of 48 sheet poster format is roughly the same kind of um, dimensions as a microwave and it's almost like they've been waiting to get a microwave out of way all their lives and i think i think in lots of ways this is brilliant because it's I love the way that it animates. You know, it's like a classic old poster, but brought to life for digital out of home for the for the current day. I love the way it animates. I love the way that pack is sort of slightly expanding and it's rotating. And I'm kind of, I, I've got all the anticipation of kind of wanting to eat it, right? But there's actually no popcorn in there. And I think that's quite brave. They don't show any of the product. That, but I get taste appeal because I've got that, anticipation as that pack is growing and expanding and what's also lovely is it says um go grab the butterkist or better grab the butterkist right which is written on the pack as well so it's not like your classic sort of logo shoved in the corner and a headline so i love that your eye is drawn to that to that i love the 
sound effects, the little pops. I love how random they are. You know, they're not uniform. They come up at different times. My one issue with it is, and and this has been a bit picky, but it it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's on campaign. It feels like it's a brilliant execution that had to be made because I didn't realise, and I looked at it and loved it and enjoyed it, and it wasn't until I read the write-up that it talked about all of the different settings on the side of the microwave for, you know, roasting a celebrity or reheated political debates. And I was like, hang on a minute, I didn't even look at that. I just assumed that was um, settings. And I think that's, if I, if I were to guess, I feel like it's the sort of, the, the, the campaign idea being sort of reversed into the execution, but it deserves to exist. It's a great execution and I, I think it works well. You see, interesting, you say, I building on my learned colleague here, I, <laughs> I agree with all that, but the way I got it, I actually thought it was a really interesting insight because, you know, you know, when there's something salacious or, you know, gossipy or something, you know, let's go grab the popcorn, sit mm-hmm, back and let's get mm-hmm. the popcorn. So I think it's a really wonderful, you know, insight and cultural thing for um, butter kiss to own because, you know, that kind of, you know, when there's something just about to go off, we're like, let's get, we'll just sit back and we, we get the metaphorical popcorn as we wait for things to go off. I feel like, as Paul was saying, those that bit on the dial gets a bit buried because actually – it could be something incredibly rich, you know, because it said, I, I read the write-up and it said, you know, playing into the Rebecca Vardy case. It's really interesting how it can play a role mm-hmm. culturally in all these really, you know, these big old gossipy events and, you know, with a line where they branded the line, go grab the butter kiss. It could be so, you can play it into so many topical and tactical mm-hmm. and cultural events and things going on. You know, a little bit the way, you know, Burger King recently, you know, when they did the Scottish BMP, you know, like no smoke without fire. They can start having a voice like that. The, the, the ex- I wonder if, you know, because this is a new campaign, they have to almost, you know, you, you lay the groundwork a little bit, get people to understand so you could, you bed it in before you run off with some of the the more spicy ones. Yeah, well, they, 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 that's something that St. Luke's been doing for the past year or so. Um, and it kind of kicked off around the Rebecca Bardi um, case. And I, I love a tactical ad. So it basically Yeah, had, I do. Yeah, they're brilliant. And if done right. And they're, to be honest, they're rarely done wrong, to be honest. I can't think of any that, you know, or maybe we don't talk about them. Um, but they're, on one side, it had the, um, the Wagatha Christie news story. And then it had like the judges eating the popcorn as a brilliant little illustration on the other side. And it was just brilliant. Um, so it's, it's it's really cool to see how do you take a popcorn brand and make it sort of, you could, it's such a brilliant insight that you grab the popcorn. I agree. I agree. I totally agree with that. I sort of feel like it's got the potential to be a Marmite because, you know, it could it could be the mm. seed of something that can grow and grow and grow because obviously as, you know, it can play into so many different scenarios, it can really kind of build into and have a, have a voice and be quite funny and be quite insightful. So I think the potential of it as got well, legs. there's loads and loads and loads of it hugely got legs mm. for me. Mm. Yeah, it's fun. And I think you're right, Imogen. I think it is. I think it's at its best when it's that sort of tactical, reactive, um, you know, commenting on culture in that in that slightly voyeuristic way. And that's probably perfect for them budget-wise as well, because I don't imagine they've got huge budgets. So being very selective and tactical about where you turn up and getting extra media coverage for it, I think is great. You know, I'm forever using the popcorn emoji. When you're like responding to things, <laughs> yeah, I know it's like the nail painter and the um, and the uh, popcorn. Mm. Those are sort of so perfect, aren't mm-hmm. they? It is that general? I think it's something that we've stared at so much. Is when you stare at the popcorn, it is very captivating because you're waiting for it to eat it. But so clever to use that simply as a as a creative idea. I agree, totally agree. It's um, no, it's a it's a great campaign and brilliant. And again, as you know, brave. You don't see the popcorn; it's in a bag. You know, not all clients are, go- are going to buy that. You know, you've got lots of posters, and you're not seeing the product. But really, you don't need to. Everyone knows what popcorn looks like, and um, you know, butter kiss doesn't necessarily look any better than any other popcorn. So yeah, be be more creative with it, which is yeah, exactly what they've done there. Mm, totally agree. Mm. Totally agree with it. Love, love, love. Last up, we have Pets at Home. We're all for pets by Nomad and the And Partnership. It's sat to the track, I Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That by Meatloaf. And the campaign illustrates just how far people will go for their pets. The film was directed by Freddie Powell through Drool and created by Ted Price and Adam Jackson. Let's have a listen first. He's gorgeous. 
See, were you a fan? Uh, I'm a massive great pet lover, and I think I wanted to love it more. In my brain, because the track is I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that, they don't do that bit of the track. So my brain goes to what won't they do for their pets, which is obviously not the point they're trying to make. Um, I don't know that I love, love, loved it, if I'm to be honest, because I think recently, you know, the work that Uncommon did with the pets and it had a really wonderful insight in it, you know, because it's so true, the insurance, you know, and it was all about, you know, how they basically are. I liked, you know, the fact there are stress balls because, you know, um, as a mother of cats, I adore them. They're my comfort support. And it's quite, there's something quite truthful in it. And there's something quite insightful in that and I'm not quite sure that was captured it's fun it's cartoony it's a romp it's quite you know OTT but I don't know if it really captured weirdly the love I feel mm. for my cats mm-hmm. as a as a very proud proud cat mum so you're gonna cry there <laughs> I know I was gonna have a little well up and also and this was where I was gonna tell a really terrible anecdote which was when I was at college once we had this um I won't name names when I was at ad school and um, somebody told me a story of how their mum, they had their Jack Russells and Jack Russell was really a really frisky. And the vet told her mum to put on a rubber glove, get some um, fairy liquid and basically wank off the <gasps> dog. And because it was frisky, that was that was the vet told oh, her that. Please feel f- go that way. Please feel free to cut this wank off the dog. This podcast has taken wow. quite a turn. I don't know how we got it's on from a here. So, so, <laughs> so you want to see that? Being, well, I'm just saying, I'll do anything for love, oh, but I won't do that. Would you wank? Off? Anyway, that might be me that's gone too far. <laughs> So, Paul, I think it's please think stop me cancelling myself. This is, I think this is a good this is a good moment for me to interject and say <laughs> I, I'm so so happy because I finally disagree with you, Sue. This is oh. good. Um, I love this. It was my favourite of the bunch. Oh, wow. I thought it was brilliant. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I thought it got everything just right. I think um, I think it was like really over the top. Like that track, that track's huge, right? Meatloaf belting out, I would do anything for love. I feel like each of the scenes was just as big. You know, they lived up to that huge track and it was joyful. And I think if we compare, and I know we're not comparing, but we go back to the um, Marmite ad and they think about that Marmite ad was 90 seconds. This was a minute. It's like this feels so much richer and so much fuller. And you've got all these different scenes and scenarios in it. And I love the casting. I believed all of the casting. I got it. I love that woman doing the sort of oak cuisine for that uh, Burmese cat. And I love the little detail. The cat was sort of slightly narrowing its eyes if it's not that impressed with what she did. Um, I love the casting of the – what is that thing? Is that, Was it a weasel or a stoat? Or a, Along you know those, the guy with a tattoo yeah, on, his, yeah, neck, yeah. on I am, his neck? A ferret. A ferret? It might have been a, a stoat, maybe? Stoat, yeah. something like that. I, but that guy, I kind of, I believed that he, I, yeah, I believed he would own that kind of um, creature. I loved all of the casting. I thought, I thought it was great. Um, it was beautifully shot. It was like it looked brilliant. Um, yeah, I, I, I found it really hard to find fault with it, apart from one tiny thing, which was actually my favourite scene in there. And I, I was kind of watching it, thinking, oh, pet owners are a bit mad, aren't they? Like, but. They're a nice bunch. I didn't really count myself as a pet owner, and of course I am. And there was a scene where there's a guy, and you couldn't really see it because it's a bit dark, but it's a pouring rain, and he's got an umbrella, and he's fiddling with um, a poo bag, and he's bending over to pick up the dog's poo. And I do that all the time, only when I bend over, like my glasses will drop out and fall in the, fall in the poo or my phone will or something, and I've got my arms full of stuff. And I think those insights are there, and I think it is um, – yeah, beautifully acted, beautifully shot, beautifully cast, perfect music. And there's even a little gag at the end, underneath the end line, which, you know, nothing's wasted, little fart gag. Don't normally like fart gags. Oh, but, uh, that's my favourite um, humour, it it, it, <laughs> <laughs> The oldest stroke in the book. I would. I did, I thought the dog fart thing was fun. That, to me, felt the 
very truthful, mm. you know, because everyone who's got a dog seems to sort of, you know, do this. Um, or the dog does that, obviously. It's always mm. the dog. They come over to you to do it <laughs> and then they walk yeah, away again. Yeah, 100%. You go, yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah. that. But no, I mean, it's a good piece of work. Don't get me wrong. I'm being really hard. It is a good piece of work, but I don't know. I think because I just think I love that, you know, that I've really got the insight from um, the other one. But it, it's a good piece of work and I do kind of get it. And like Paul said, it's really beautifully um, executed. There's some nice touches in it. Lovely. Well, that's all we have time for today. So thank you to Sue and Paul for joining us to discuss some recent ads. You're welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Campaign Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about what we've been discussing, please visit our website, campaignlive.co.uk. Details of our subscriptions are available at www.campaignlive.co.uk forward slash membership. If you enjoyed this episode of the Campaign Podcast, please follow us, like us, and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. A big thank you to Haymarket Studio Manager Nav Pal and to our producer Aidan Lyons from Rethink Audio. And also to you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. On behalf of the campaign team, goodbye.